Before we get into our passage for this morning, which is Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, let's pray together for God to help us understand and receive his word. Father, thank you for these children and this opportunity to praise you together with the kids and all the generations of our church, lifting up the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And we don't just want to worship you through singing or through giving. We want to worship you by listening to you. So please help us now to listen and receive your word and be transformed by it. Please help me to serve your people well and not obscure anything in this clear passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Um, The triumphal entry is this celebratory high point in the Gospels. When Jesus enters Jerusalem and everybody is celebrating and everybody's calling him the Savior, the long-awaited Messiah, the King. But what we sometimes forget is that very quickly, immediately after that, Jesus was persecuted. And the Jewish religious authorities began to swarm around Jesus and challenge him and question his authority We've been working through the book of Mark, so we've been seeing this over the last couple of weeks. But it's helpful to remember that after that high point of the triumphal entry and all the palm branches and all the celebration was trouble for Jesus. Trouble that would eventually lead to his being killed on the cross for our sins. So that's where we enter into our passage today. It's Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. If you'll find it in your Bibles. Jesus just got done arguing with the Pharisees about authority, proving that he was an authority, whereas the the religious authorities felt that they were the authorities. And then he starts to teach them in parables. That's how chapter 12 begins. And he began to speak to them in parables. So before we read the parable, I just want to make sure we're all clear on what a parable is. Uh, It's not something that we talk about a lot in our American modern culture. But Jesus used parables really, really frequently. When in his teaching and his proclaiming, he used parables. And they're short stories that convey a big point. The key to understanding the parables is that they usually just have one point that they're making. And they're trying to make it in a snappy way that's memorable and a little sneaky. They're trying to convey a point in a way that sort of sneaks into the consciousness of the hearers through a story. So the story's kind of like a Trojan horse for the point that Jesus is trying to make. They're not allegories. It's not necessary to find um, uh, an exact equivalent to every character in every parable. The goal when interpreting a parable is just to get the point. The closest thing we have to a parable in our modern usage, just normal speech, is probably a joke. The point when you hear a joke is not to analyze every detail of the joke, Um, it's to just get the punchline of the joke, the point of the joke. Uh, Lee Jones tells jokes all the time. I wish he was still here. He left early because of Craig's episode. I was going to ask him to tell me a joke so I could give you an example of a Lee Jones joke. I can't remember him. I never can. I'm sure many of you have heard Lee Jones tell a joke. Uh, he'll, He'll tell a joke Sunday morning, and I'll try to tell Meredith what he said, and it's never funny when I say it. It's only funny when Lee Jones says it. And it's, it's spoken word. So when Jesus told his parables, he was just speaking to the people who were around. And it, it was a casual feeling part of his teaching. And kind of like jokes, there's almost an element of you had to be there in a sense. Because we, so culturally removed from what it was like for them 
struggle to understand all the references that they naturally understood. So this is a story that he told to make one point, and we're going to read it. We're going to identify what that one point is, and we're going to think about what that means for us. So let's first read the story of this parable. In Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. And Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed, they, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now those Jews standing there, especially the Jewish religious leaders, would have understood exactly what the story was saying. They would have understood the point of this story immediately. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as God's vineyard. God's chosen people throughout the Old Testament, Israel, is called God's vineyard. In Isaiah chapter 5, there's almost an exact description of how God planted this vineyard of Israel that's almost mirror image of, of what we read here. So the Jewish people would have known he's talking about Israel as the vineyard. But the tenants are a new element to this story from what they knew from the Old Testament. The tenants are pointing to the religious authorities. They're the ones given charge over the vineyard, over the people of Israel. They're supposed to be tending the vineyard of God's people and producing fruit of praise and worship for God. But when God sent servants, he sent prophets and messengers, they mistreated them and rejected them. But God had one more person he could send, a beloved son. You remember when Jesus was baptized at the beginning of Mark? God's voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved son. So the owner of the vineyard sends his beloved son to the tenants. God sends his beloved son to the people of Israel and to the leaders of Israel. And even them, even, even him, they reject and they kill. And Jesus has predicted already several times that he would be killed by these people. And here he explains it through parable, that they're going to kill him. But the point of the parable is the last verse. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. The religious authorities were trying to cling to their power, and Jesus, the heir, was sent. They were going to reject him, and through their rejection, they were going to lose the vineyard. They were going to lose their position of power over God's people. Now, all this probably seems kind of far-field from anything that pertains to you. You're not an ancient Jewish religious leader. Uh, What does this have to do with me? Well, Jesus clarifies his main point in verses 10 and 11, and here's really where the core of, of what you probably need to take with you. 
today comes from. Verses 10 and 11. He switches imagery from a vineyard to building terms. He says, have you not read this scripture? And then he quotes Psalm 118 that the people quoted when they celebrated Jesus entering Jerusalem. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in his eyes. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The cornerstone in ancient building practices was the largest. It was the first. It was set in place very carefully because it was going to be the foundation and the standard by which the rest of the structure would be built. The whole rest of the structure would take its shape around this cornerstone. It was the most important, the principal part of the structure in anything that would be built back then. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone for all that God wishes to build. These religious leaders were rejecting him, foolishly not realizing that he is not just some prophet, not just some teacher. He is the cornerstone, the foundation and standard for everything that God wishes to build in this world. What is God building? And you're here with your particular concerns and your particular endeavors and your hopes and your challenges and the things going on in your life. You have the things that you're up to. What is God up to? You have the things you've prayed for, perhaps the things that that God has not answered in your prayers. And here we see this imagery of a building and we get the, the idea that God is building something. But what is he building? This cornerstone idea is revisited through the New Testament, and we'll look at a couple of these passages together. But what becomes clear as the rest of God's revelation unfolds is that God is building a people. God is building a people, and Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of what he's building. Look with me at Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 12. Peter has been sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, and he's been arrested by these same Jewish authorities. And here's what he says. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So part of what God is doing is he's saving people. Through Jesus Christ. And there is no salvation in any other avenue other than Jesus Christ. Your work cannot save you. Your family cannot save you. Your good deeds cannot save you. Sin has so infected us that it required the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Salvation can be found in no one else, in no place else, in no way else. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of what God is doing. And what he's doing is saving a people. But we learn more if we keep reading. Let's go to Ephesians 
chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 19. Paul is writing to the Christians in the city of Ephesus, and he's explaining to them what it means to be a part of the church and to be Christians. And he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What is God doing through and around Jesus Christ, the cornerstone? He's building a people. He's saving a people. He's welcoming a people in as citizen saints into his kingdom. He's welcoming new members into the household of God building on the apostles and the prophets, the testimony we have in God's word, on top of the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, he's joining together a structure of people, a structure that will grow into a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling place for God. One more passage to just further clarify what God is doing on Jesus Christ, the beloved son, the cornerstone. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. 1 Peter 2, beginning at verse 4. This is the Apostle Peter writing to a group of Christians. He writes, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, As they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So God, through Jesus Christ, is taking people like you and like me as if they were living stones, and he's building a spiritual house. There's different ways to understand this this building project God is undergoing. He calls it a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, God's own people. That's what God is up to. That's what the Jewish religious authorities didn't understand. And that's what it means that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Now, I, I've read a lot of scripture. I believe there's power in God's word, but I also believe it can be uh, sleep-inducing to hear someone read for a long time. And I've been told that my voice is uniquely sleep-inducing at times. 
But I come now to the application part of the sermon. Okay. Theoretically, this should be the most engaging for you. And I really struggle with the application of this this parable and Mark because you don't want to take a parable and just mold it into whatever application you think people want to hear. You know, what I wanted to say was make Jesus the cornerstone of your work and then your work life will be great. Make Jesus the cornerstone of your marriage and your marriage will be great. Make Jesus the cornerstone of your fantasy football league and your fantasy football league will be great. These are the kinds of applications that you often hear from these passages, but that's not what it's saying. What it's saying is different from that. So I'm going to do my best to apply this faithfully to the Scripture, and I trust the Spirit to bring it home to our hearts. Back in our passage, Mark chapter 12, the Jewish religious authorities rejected Jesus. We can read that in verse 12. They were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. And they regrouped, and they came up with another strategy to try to dethrone him and humiliate him. But ultimately, they rejected Jesus Christ. They rejected the beloved son. They rejected the cornerstone. Now, Palm Sunday, when we celebrate Jesus entering Jerusalem, is all about receiving Jesus. It's all about recognizing Jesus for who he is, the Savior, the Lord, the beloved son, the cornerstone. Ultimately, that's the only application for this. Receive Jesus as the cornerstone. Don't reject him. And to receive him as anything but the cornerstone is to reject him. To receive him as a buddy that you can turn to when you need him, but otherwise irrelevant to your life, is to reject him. Because that's not who he is. He is the cornerstone. He is the foundation of everything God wishes to do in reality. What does it feel like to receive Jesus as the cornerstone? Well, we read it during all those scriptures I read. It's salvation. It's citizenship in the kingdom of God. It's membership in the household of God. It's being joined together with other Christians atop Jesus Christ as the foundation and being built up together in Christ. It's being taken up like a living brick and placed into God's building project. Now, I know how abstract that is, but the idea is that it's being chosen, plucked up, put in place into what God is doing. You know, my kids play with Legos a lot. I've got Legos here as a visual, visual aid. Jesus Christ, the foundation, the cornerstone, us as living stones being put in place. You being grabbed by God through Jesus Christ and put in place in God's great big building project that he's working on. Now, often we, we like the idea culturally of bringing God into our endeavors, praying before the little league game, bring God into the little league game. You know, let's bring a little bit of God into our marriage. Let's bring a little bit of God into our work. That's not what God's up to. He is not waiting to be injected in little doses into our lives, into our endeavors. What he's up to is taking you, your whole life, and you, and putting you in place in what he's doing. Your hobbies, your marriage, your work, your things, everything that you are, he takes, he puts into what he's doing. And there is an important distinction there between those two. 
Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, the foundation for all that God is building. You know, if there's parts of your life that just don't make any sense and you can't feel your way along, it could be because you're not looking at it through the correct lens. It could be because, like the Jewish leaders, you've forgotten that God is the main player in reality. And he is up to something. And often we want to bring him into what we want to happen, and it doesn't work, and we get frustrated, we don't understand. It's because he's up to something bigger than the little things that we're up to. And if we'll allow him, through Jesus Christ, he will take us and put us in the place of what he's doing. And it will be transformative to all the different elements of your life. Ultimately, the message of the passage is, do not reject Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. Not even just your cornerstone. That was one of the questions in my first draft I had, is Jesus your cornerstone? It's not that he's, he either is yours or he's not. It's that he is the cornerstone. And God has told us so that we can live in light of that fact. He is the cornerstone. And our lives will make no sense unless we build atop that cornerstone. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, the foundation for all that God is building. Do not reject him. Receive him anew this morning. Let him take you and place you into his building project. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and I trust its power to accomplish your purposes. I know you brought each individual here on purpose and that you meant to speak to them through your word. And I, I just ask that, I ask that it would be made clear to all our hearts. And if there's any way that we as individuals or we as a church are not living in light of the fact that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of everything you wish to do in this world, please show us and help us repent and turn to you for forgiveness and realignment. In Jesus' name, amen.